Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. Episode 63, Season 7. We took a week off, and now we're back. Glad to be back. Today, we have Domati Pongo from MTV. He's a co-worker. Uh, he's on MTV News, MTV's True Life Crime, and just did a digital series on Smithsonian called Conversations in Context, and that's a really good one. We talk about his West African heritage, son of Ghanaian immigrants, and growing up in Chicago, his experience breaking into journalism and entertainment, and how he balances activism and pop culture. It's a lot to unpack there. It's such a good conversation. Also, if any of you are interested in getting into the entertainment industry, we talk about some of the skills it takes to be on camera and what it's like to pitch ideas. And Domati has some really great tips. Definitely check it out if you have any interest in that. Uh, but before we begin, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and drop a review. And make sure you get out and vote. November 3 is the last day to vote. Uh, your life depends on it. I got my vote in this weekend on Vote Early Day, and it felt different this year, obviously, for so many reasons. I can't encourage you all enough. If you can vote, do it. But that said, without further ado, here is our conversation with Domati Pongo. Domati Pongo, it's a pleasure to have you on First Generation Burden. You are a MTV News correspondent, the host of MTV's True Life Crime. Also, you just did Conversations in Context for Smithsonian. And also, you're on Sound Up on Snapchat for MTV, too. Which yeah. Is- yeah. Is that, is, that, is that officially out? I didn't even know that was out yet. I was just dope. You're an insider for knowing that one. Yes. <laughs> I heard about Sound Up. It's a new Snapchat show uh, that MTV's hosting, hosted by Jamila Mustafa. And uh, I'm one of the panelists on that show, man. It's a really exciting project. Yeah, I know they put a couple of the episodes up on Snap on MTV's regular Discover page. I think they're going to, they have a bigger plan for some of those, uh, for the next wave of those. But I have been seeing them like turn up in my Snapchat feed. So yeah, inside, insider-ish. This, this, is, this is what happens when you have a friend who's a VP. I'm the host of the damn thing. <laughs> and I don't even know it's out. I'm like, oh, that's out? Okay, cool. <laughs> oh, it's already in the world? Word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've been recording pilots for it for the past few weeks. And we just talk about pop culture topics and hot stuff that's happening in the news and, and kind of just riff on it. And uh, yeah, it's out there. So check it out, y'all. <laughs> nice, nice. That's awesome. Also for the listener, you and I have had a version of what this conversation that's about to happen for like three times already. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll try to mix it up on you and also we can just kind of talk and, and riff on it. I know for the last couple, for the listener again, like we just did a first gen conversations uh, live recording through Zoom. Um, and also uh, we did one last year. Uh, it was the MTV edition and we we won a, a Webby honoree for that one with a great set of panelists. And you, uh, you know, you did us the honor of being one of our panelists for this year within the live Zoom. So I appreciate you for that. Man, I appreciate you having me. That was beautiful. And I'm happy to have this conversation a third, fourth, fifth time, too. <laughs> it gets better every single time, for real. Love it. Uh, so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then we'll just jump right in. Yeah, man, I'm from the city of Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicagoans, the first thing they'll tell you is that they're from Chicago. And uh, both my parents are immigrants from West Africa that came to the States in the 70s. Um, I grew up uh, first gen, two older sisters, grew up in the Black American experience, but my household was African. And I always felt like, and, and I love your show because I always felt this duality because, you know, I um, you know, I live the Black American experience, but I, but I feel... African in my core, yet I don't speak my home languages fluently. 
So, you know, there's always this this battle and in, in, in a lifelong search for identity that's both, uh, that has become fulfilling in my adulthood, but was a little more frustrating when I was younger. Yeah, same. Actually, I never really learned my native language too, like Tagalog or Filipino. And then I always heard it speaking, being spoken in my home to my parents and also my, my aunties and uncles, my titos and titas. And I just never really picked it up. I, I kind of regret it now, later in life. I don't know if you're the same way. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I absolutely do. I um, actually was talking to my mom about it last night. My mom called. My mom's a night owl like me. We're talking at like two a.m. just just riffing and catching up. And you know, I was asking her words in Ewe, and you know, we we're going back and forth. And you know, there are two native tongues. There's Ewe, which is the language that my tribe, my family speaks. Uh, my name is Ewe. That's that's my dad's culture, my mom's culture. And then there's Tree, which is spoken in Accra mainly. And it's uh, like uh, the most popular language, you know, the Akans and the people who speak Tree are the, the biggest cultural group uh, in Ghana. So growing up, there was value in learning both languages, the one that was my home language and the one that was prominent in the continent. So when I go home or in the country, so when I go home, I can navigate. And even as an adult, sometimes I mix the two up. Somebody asked me a question in Tree and I respond in that way. And I never really got uh, it right. And so... It's, it's a lifelong thing. So I'm really trying to be an old dog and learn a new trick and learn how to, how to speak my native tongue. Yeah, that's the tell when you go back home. And they're like, oh, you're not from here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, like, oh you're mixing my... it up. Got you. He's been gone too long. He's been gone too long. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, I'd love to know, like, what your parents do back in Ghana? Like, and also, what brought them here? They're, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about the circumstances. Yeah, so my... um. My dad came from from a, a village, a uh, farming village. Um, my parents come from Alavano and Central Kofi, which are like remote areas. And, uh, you know, my dad, he loves telling this story. He didn't get his first pair of shoes until he was 19 years old when it was time for him to go away to school. So he didn't even have a pair of shoes. And, you know, he always tells me, you know, look at this. This uh, African kid who couldn't have a pair of shoes, who went to America, got his PhD and raised his kids there. So I was real proud of that. And, um, you know, my mom, uh, when she came, she came to the States with my dad. They came at the same time together. And she enrolled in a Kennedy King College, a community college in Chicago and uh, took up nursing. And uh, my dad got his PhD in theology and, you know, had written a book, uh, had been working as a professor for some time, but he could never really get a full tenure position. and he couldn't find career opportunities teaching the disciplines he wanted to teach. You know, he would get pigeonholed into teaching African studies, even though he didn't study that. Or I remember he was working at Chicago State in Chicago and St. Xavier in Chicago. Uh, Chicago State, for context, is where Kanye's mom taught for a while. And, um, you know, he ended up leaving that field altogether uh, just to make money to support the fam a little better. And uh, at 50 years old, went back to get his BSN in nursing and uh, works in healthcare right now as a, as a nurse. Damn, that's an amazing journey. Yeah, it's quite yeah. crazy. What what was the Ghanaian population like in Chicago? Was it a big community? Yeah, it's, it was a robust community. It's a big community, and uh, I think there are more of the West Africans. I think Niger there are more Nigerians in uh, in Chicago. Uh, a lot of Ghanaians, a lot of Ghanaian presence. There's uh, the Ghana Fest uh, happens every year um, in in Chicago, which is on the south side of Chicago in Washington Park. At least that's where it was, you know, when I was growing up. And it's like an unofficial family reunion because in Ghanaian culture, everybody is your cousin. Every Ghanaian you meet is your cousin because they probably, if they're from Ghana and live in Chicago, they knew their parents knew my parents at some point. 
And so that was like the Ghana Fest was a chance for me to just link up and meet all my family there. And it, 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 it was it was like my community outside of the community, which let, made me feel a part of African culture still, even though I didn't have those things like language. Uh, I'd love to know just a little bit about uh, what your what your childhood was like within pop culture. It's a little bit of like a hard left turn, but uh, because you are, you know, you're a journalist and, you know, I see your content all the time professionally because uh, we work in the same place, <laughs> but also because I, I genuinely enjoy it and I, I just genuinely um, absorb it uh, and wanting to learn. And I think you're a great conduit for that. Like, did, did you always have that mindset of wanting of that curiosity as well as that, that desire to interpret, I guess, I don't know, editorial lens or your, your creative mm-hmm. lens? Like, what was that like when you were a kid? Yeah, it, it was, um, I, I love this question so much because every time you ask it, it, it makes me dig deeper into the recesses of my mind and really think, you know, you know, how you think you, you, you have to consciously think about like, man, what makes me you like, what, how, when did Rich get interested in shoes? And sometimes <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it always was. Yeah. I can, then, t- I can tell you exactly that moment though. <laughs> oh, you got that moment. If you don't mind, you mind telling me that moment as, as oh. I think about that moment for me too. I don't know if you get on your podcast already. Yeah. When did you fall in love with sneakers? Dude, I fell in love with sneakers because well, my parents, you know, Filipino ing- uh, immigrants, they were cheap. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were, they were cheap. I don't have any uh, hesitation to say that. And then I really didn't, I always saw um, other kids with cooler sneakers than me. And I remember getting a pair of Olympians when I was in seventh grade mm. and I was in gym class. And then just the immediate comparison of like what's on my feet compared to what's on my classmates feet. And I was like, man, I hate this. <laughs> like, I don't like this. Uh, and then I ended up getting my first pair of Nikes that I got with my own money. It was a pair of Air Force Ones and it was black and white canvas uppers uh, with a white swoosh. I still have the pair in my parents' house. They're size 11 and a half. Uh, yeah, and I'm 39 years old in a month or in two weeks. So for comparison, this is seventh grade. I still have that pair. And then I uh, just kept it forever and then just became like that that um, that intro, you know, that uh, that entry-level drug. And then after that, it was a pair of uh, up-tempos, more up-tempos, didn't have the full bubble, got those when I was a sophomore in high school. And then, and then when I started getting jobs, I would just buy sneakers like every week. I was working at Borders Bookstore buying a pair a week. I was making like no money. <laughs> And, then, and basically the whole check went to a pair of sneakers probably. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I love that so much because it's funny. I'm glad I asked you because it, it, it sparks some parallels in my story. So it is, it's, it's twofold. Uh, my interest in just like, just content that uplifts, you know, marginalized narrative and that's, that's pro black and Afro centered came in part from my dad and in part from my big sister. Now, my big sister was a hip-hop head. In the 90s, she was a backpack rapper herself. And she used to take me to all of the open mics with her. And I tried to be like Nunya. Nunya's my big sister. You know, I tried to write verses. I'm six years old, seven years old, asking her to help me to put these words together, these rhymes together. And the music she was listening to, my favorite album to this day, is The Roots, Do You Want More? Black Thought is my favorite MC. Um, and you know, th- those projects, those Talib, Kweli, Most Def, Black on Both Sides, all of that, like when you listen to songs like Mathematics, and he's talking about global warming and climate change way back when, and he's talking about the lead water crisis, like what's going on in Flint way back when, those things were just ingrained into my psyche. Like, this is what content is supposed to be like. Like, this is what, even when I, I still have my old rhyme books, I go back to these old verses, 
I'm like, I was a shorty. I didn't really know the gravity of what I was talking about, but I was talking about oppression and what it's like. And, and, and so there was that lens. It was like culturally and in hip hop, it was dope to be aware. And then my dad was very conscious of the images he allowed within the household. Like he didn't allow my sisters to play with Barbie dolls because he didn't want his daughters to think that that's how they were supposed to look or something was wrong with them if their hair wasn't blonde or if their skin wasn't light. So he didn't allow that in the household. He had books all throughout the house. Some of the books in my shelf right now are like, I just go and pillage all the books in my dad's basement. And, you know, I just take some home and, uh, you know, and, and just say, like, I'm finally going to burn through these. And so, yeah, it was always... He always had us surrounded by books, always surrounded us by black narratives. And even when people used to make fun of uh, our names when we were coming up and he was like, you know, he told us to be proud of our names. And, you know, a lot of a lot of my cousins had African names, but they also had American names. You know, you'll be Kofi at home and Michael when he's outside. And I never had an American name. My dad said that was intentional because he wanted me to know that there was value in my African identity. What's the translation of your name? I know we've talked about this before, but I'd love for the listeners to know. Almost deaf. It means, Domiti means the backbone of the family or the pillar of the family. And my last name, Pongo, means workhorse. And uh, the last name Pongo actually uh, is a surname that came, it's only a few generations old. Um, I didn't tell you this before, but I give you the backstory on on the pod. This is why I love first gen. Um, My, you know, in, in African culture, my great granddad, if somebody in his family's immediate brother or sister passed away, just like a godfather would do, he would take care of that person's kids. Well, when his brothers died, my great grandfather, when his brothers died, he took in their kids and everybody would say, Ponko, Ponko, which basically means workhorse. You work hard. He's always working because he had to take on his nieces and nephews and take care of them. And so he worked himself so hard just trying to provide for these families that have become part of his own. And that surname was more like a nickname and eventually became my family's surname and it stuck to this day. And yeah, it just literally means workhorse. And um, and in most cultures, same as in African culture, we believe that your name uh, carries your identity, what, what your name means, uh, will tell you something about a person's personality. And, you know, in addition to the names that your parents give you, you also have a name that may be given to you based on the day you were born in Ghanaian culture. So. You know, I was born on a Sunday. So one of my middle names is Kwesi, or it could also be pronounced Kwasi or Kwesi. Um, you know, if you're Saturday born, it would be Kwame. And every day born has a different characteristic, similar to jo- zodiac signs, like when, when you're born has characteristics. So, yeah, so that's what my name means. Did you ever have a moment of wanting to, and I, I'm, I'm figuring out how to phrase this question, to be honest. Like, no. did you ever have a moment of like personal cultural rejection? Like, cause I was, when mm. I grew up and, you know, I, I didn't really have Filipino friends until high school that weren't my cousins. I, I went to mm-hmm. a predominantly black elementary school. Um, and then in my high school, it was private. I went to a high school that had an Asian group. I was like, oh, this is the first time I experienced being around other Asians in mm-hmm. school. And then I kind of started embracing my Filipino-ness, my, my individual culturalness. But then I started rejecting it again. Because it felt, I don't know, like it felt, to be quite honest, like a little corny to, to kind of rep it in that way. You know, it felt like it was a phase, and then I went back in on a much deeper level after, you know, a dis, a, an intentional discovery or a desire to discover myself and go back to my indigenous roots, which is a part of this too. You know, did you ever have that moment, or you were just always on that track? 
No, no. I wish I could say that I was always like, this is who I am. This is who I'm not. Nah. I mean, I was getting, and I think that that was the power of my dad, of my parents giving, because my mom wanted to name me Michael. <laughs> and uh, I think that was the power of my dad giving us African names because he didn't let us escape from it. It, it didn't allow me to, because I had moments where, yeah, it was the same way, Rich, like, you would get teased, you know, I got called everything from, you know, teased for being dark skin, teased for being caught. I used to get called African booty scratcher by, by kids in school. I used to get teased for not having the, the coolest shoes, same way. And even more so, you know, not only, you know, did I not come from a wealthy family, but they also didn't get this American materialism. So when I'm like, no, I can't wear the Payless Pro Wings to school today why you know and so i was like man i just wish i was just normal like the other kids like their parents buy them gym shoes they got big screen tvs like i grew up i didn't have cable you know i remember in my job i didn't have cable either you either thank you no. is that an immigrant thing like i think that's an i think that's an immigrant thing i didn't get cable until i was 19 years old in college in college yes same Yes. Same, bro. I remember from my job interview, they was like, yo, what do you love about most about MTV? And, you know, they, they asked these questions. We work for TV networks. So I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I caught MTV when I ran across the street to kick it with my boy DeMarco. <laughs> like, <laughs> if I if I went over to his house and he had, the, he had the big screen TV and all of these things, then, then yeah, we got to watch it. But, you know, it... it Nah, I didn't. I didn't have TV. I didn't have those things. And so it wasn't... The cultural rejection came from wanting to have... Wanted to fit in, wanted to have the values and have fun. Like I felt like my my friends had fun and my family somehow seemed poorer than they were because we didn't have these amenities. It was like, we all live, why why are we all, I know we all broke, but how am I somehow broker than the rest of my friends? Like y'all got cable, y'all got Jordans on. And my parents would say, oh, they, you know, they got, they, they, eventually we moved out to the suburbs and, you know, a lot of my friends at the time still lived in the city. And so my parents would say, you know, you, when you focus on a bigger goal, you don't have to do, have these amenities in the short term. And so that was the lesson they were trying to give me. But as a kid, you ain't trying to hear that shit. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I, in that way, I wanted to reject it. And I didn't really fully, fully embrace my, my African identity so much. Uh, I didn't, I couldn't run from it because it was always, what does your name mean? Where did the name come from? But when I became a rapper, that's where a lot of my confidence came from. Like when I dove in high school and my hip hop identity, everything that I had, you know, that I could use to make myself different and cool, I used it. You know, I was wearing, you know, the colors of the Ghanaian flag. I was rocking red, green, and yellow in my in my uh, Air Force Ones. You know, when, back when we used to get our Air Force Ones painted. Yeah. And I probably had my own my after school job getting my Air Force Ones painted with the Ghana colors and trying to find ways to make it wavy because I was insecure about it. But I'm like, if I can make it wavy, maybe this would be like my niche. Totally. Uh, I want to talk about uh, hip hop. I talk about you as a rapper. Uh, what was your rapper name? And also what were you, uh, what was your uh, entry point like, in performance? Like where were you performing? What, what were you doing? Like how were you also getting your music out into the world in Chicago? Where I went by the prophecy. And uh, the prophecy just came out in the middle of a freestyle one day. And I just like how it sounded when I said Domati the prophecy. So a lot of my friends still call me prof, but, you know, that name is long gone. And uh, eventually I was, um, you know, people used to mispronounce my name, actually. They used to call me Demetti in high school. And um, oh, that's mad Italian. Mad it don't it sound Italian? Yeah, it Italian. And so, like, I, I, I began to take that on. I remember you you shared with me before how you went by Rich too. Yeah, and yeah. I, I didn't even share this before, but 
actually letting people, I would introduce myself, hey, I'm Domati. Oh, Demetti, nice to meet you. I'm Amber or something. And I'm like, oh, I, I took on Demetti as I guess that's the American pronunciation of my name. I'll roll with it. But I never introduced myself as Demetti. I just didn't correct people. And it wasn't until I started making music and I would use words that rhyme with Domati or say Domati in my, you know, in my verses that my actual pronunciation began to you know, stick. And how I got my music out there in high school, this is the era of MySpace and CDs. I was uh, I was the kid at the locker selling CDs and mixtapes. Everybody after school would come to my locker for the cypher, banging on the lockers. And, you know, I, I would be spitting, owning the cypher, had a rap group called SG where I put, you know, I, I started trying to build a roster, a team of MCs. And we dropped about four or five mixtapes between me being 15 and 19 years old. And, um, we went to the mall and I had the stack of CDs, uh, went to Kinko's, got album covers printed, you know, went to Sam's Club, got Blink's jewel cases printed out, made inserts, did all of the stuff myself, went to the consignment store at the mall and said, yo, um, how does this work? I got 200 CDs. Let me get this to you and let me, how, how do we do this? And, you know, they were like, well, you we charge half, you, you know, we, we, you make half, you come back, pick up the money. And I would tell everybody at school, yo, you can catch my CD at the mall, which made me sound like I was popping. Wow. <laughs> you can get my CD at the mall. That sounds so legit back then. So bad. So legit. It sounds so old now, don't it though? Like, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, we are the oldest men on earth right now. <laughs> I'm telling you, old millennials, boy. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, oh and, yeah. And that was the thing. I'm telling you. And then we, uh, our first big quote unquote big thing was, um, and this is in the suburbs of Chicago. This is in Calumet City. We ended up getting picked up, me and my partner at the time, Ute, uh, who I used to rap with, ended up getting picked up by uh Northwest Indiana newspaper and they did a story on us. And then um, we started to get traction. Our song, Get It Juke and played on Chicago radio. It was featured in a movie called Dance Fool, uh, spearheaded by Cedric the Entertainer's entertainment company at the time. It starred Afion Crockett, Tommy Davidson, Kel Mitchell from Kenan and Kel. Um, and our song was the sync license for the opening dance sequence. It's a goofy, goofy, straight to DVD movie called Dance Foo, where- <laughs> I didn't know this about you. I'm looking this up now. Dance Foo from 2011. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and and our song, you're gonna hear our song, Get It Juking, right in the opening sequence uh, of this movie. And that was my first sync license. And I figured out how sync deals work. And I started to learn about the business of music. Uh, through that, you know, I only made like a hundred dollars for the usage of my song uh, in, in the film. But for me, that was a huge thing. And I was 2011. I was like senior year of college. And I'm like, yo, you know, it's things are working. But the, the problem that I always had with my music was I had this duality where I, I feel like I didn't put a hundred percent of my energy toward it because I had these immigrant parents who required a stable career path. And I almost, there was a point at which I almost didn't go to college. I said, listen, I'm 18. I'm either going to go hard for music, move out my parents' home and figure it out. I don't know how to get enough money to get an apartment, but I was probably going to get into some things I didn't have no business getting into, or I was going to go to college and prayed about it. Uh, we can go into, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but I ended up finding Christ in that time. And that changed the whole trajectory of my, of my life. And I ended up going to college and I still use rap as an outlet and battled with, okay, am I a college student? Am I going to go to get a job after college? Or am I going to be an MC? And I did feel like I had to choose because 
you got to put all your eggs in one basket if you really want to make it. You know what I'm saying? At least that's that's my perspective. And, uh, right. you know, eventually when when I, uh, you know, quit corporate America and went into entertainment, I just went 100 percent into broadcast and, and the fruits of my labor were finally realized. And, uh, and and now music, I realized that God gifted me the ability for me as a creative outlet and as a vent and not necessarily, uh, you know, for the outward world, you know. No, totally. Uh, I want to talk about your transition into entertainment. So you started out as a radio DJ, radio host, yeah. but then you move into being on screen. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you get from A to B, because even getting on the radio is kind of a hard get, right, yeah. from yeah. nothing. But then to go from behind the mic to in front of the camera, that's another big jump. I'd just love to hear a little bit about that too. Yeah, so my first job was at WVON a black on, it's so funny, I can't even say it without saying it like I'm on there, WVON, a black on radio station on the south side of Chicago, who, just for context, when, you know, there's this famous picture that circulates at the station of Martin Luther King when he came to Chicago, uh, and he had to talk to the city, he would talk on WVON, and Al Sharpton still shows, still simulcast on WVON, very pro-black revolutionary station. I started there as an intern, and it was also kind of a mom and pop owned station distributed through iHeartRadio, but it had its challenges uh, securing advertisement and it was talk radio. And I learned a lot during that time uh, working as a, as, as a news anchor there. Eventually, I began to build my brand in the city by doing hosting forums on like journalistic best practices by networking with the NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists there. And every time these, you know, these convenings would happen in the city where different journalists would come to talk shop about different issues or share resources, there was an outpouring of, uh, you know, attendees who said, yo, there's not enough diversity on these panels. And they went and tapped WVON and said, yo, we need to diversify these panels. Who would you send to come speak? And they're like, well, our news director is Noma T. Pongo. And they're like, this 24, 25-year-old kid is your news director? Okay, but I went on the panels and, and, and spoke my spoke my truths and, and they began to build uh, a brand for myself throughout the city. And, um, and, and that caught the attention of WGN Radio, which was partnered with WGN TV. Here's the funny, here's the funny thing, Rich, about like how Synergy works. The morning show producer on WGN TV, Black Woman, had a segment on WVON, my radio station. So she was familiar with me. And as my star began to rise, she said, hey, would you mind filling in and doing this segment with us on WGN TV? Oh, for sure. I go and do the segment. And then other news directors began to pay attention. And I started getting emails and DMs like, hey, one of our anchors is out sick. Can you pop on and fill in for him? And, or one of our reporters, rather, not anchors. And then I started to get my chops on TV. And, uh, and that's when those rap instincts kicked in. When I'm doing live report and I'm learning how to freestyle with somebody on the street for this man on the street interview. Uh, I, I know about stage presence. I'm aware of how I look when I'm saying certain words right. because I've spent so much time practicing the art of performing with music. Dude, it is so hard. Like I once did a segment on MTV's Fresh Out with Kevin Kenny, right? So shout out, Kevin. No, shout out to Kevin. Kevin's a G. I love Kevin. So I once did a segment there and that, that I've been on, I'm not an on-screen person. I'm much more behind the scenes, and but I do this. This is I don't make any money from this podcast, by the way, which is it's more of a I'm compelled to do it. But Wait, uh, uh, I thought I was going to pay for this. 
Oh, uh, hold on. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Your, uh, your check is coming in the mail. Don't worry. You're the only one. <laughs> You're getting uh, SAG hours for this one. No, right. <laughs> no, but uh, on that set, it was so intense. And But also, you know, I, I've been on set before, but never in front of the camera. And just the, the jump from a much smaller piece, the much bigger produced piece. I was, I was like, oh yeah, this is this tightrope is so specific, so intense. Um, but also to go back to your story too, jumping on camera for the first time, I remember I did a segment once for Filipino TV, mm. right? Um, where they wanted to interview like an artist, a designer within the Filipino community, but then put it on um, ABS-CBN Telecom, which is broadcast in the Philippines and also to specific um, communities here that have that service, right? They have to subscribe to it. So I did it and I was thinking like, this is going to be a small thing, but then I just got all these DMs and texts from family members after the fact that were like, yo, I saw you on ABS CBN telecom doing the thing. I was like, yo, I, I just didn't realize the power of being on screen for your community until that moment. Um, and I don't know if that, what that was like for you too. The exact same thing. My parents at the time, uh, you, you, immigrant parents can be so stoic and not, not effusive with praise. And so they'll be proud of you and you have to look for signs uh, of them being proud of you. And it's funny, I think that you, I think that you put some good energy in my atmosphere because I, I think you've asked me a question like straight up, like, are your parents proud? And I said this answer before that, you know, yeah, you just look for signs. I know they're proud. They never really say it. And my mom last night when we were talking, like I said, was like, yo, I'm so proud of you. I was like, oh, word, mom, okay, I never heard these before, these words. But um, that time when I first saw the family pride was, you know, people watch like linear TV, but you know, with millennials, like we, we, we tend to think that we know people watch TV, but they stream content more. So I was on WGN TV, which is a personal milestone for me being a Chicagoan, but I didn't think a lot of people would necessarily see it. I opened up my Instagram and in my stories, everyone's tagging me like, yo, I'm at the nail shop. What is Dumba T doing on TV? And then like, but guys are talking about it. And then my mom's calling me. Oh, your auntie called me. She said she sees you on TV. And I said, oh, yes, he's doing his TV thing. You know, <laughs> so like, it, it, it became, you're right. It began to make it real. And it, it helped my family to see that I was getting somewhere with this. And it was a lot of freelance and freelance and radio is not a lot of money and television. The money gets a little better, but it's freelance and it comes when it comes opportunity come, come when they come. Uh, but those hits, man, and that, that support that you get from friends and family when they catch you organically is nothing like it. I love streaming. I love my digital show, but, uh, it's different when your family and friends are retweeting something or when you send them the link and say, yo, check out the story, you'd appreciate it. Versus when they think they're just watching a show and then you pop up, you know, and that's, that's, that's something special, man. Yeah, totally. When they are literally just watching something, then they see your face. I got, I got no family play from when I was on the Fresh Out, just because my family doesn't watch like, right, right, right. linear <laughs> television, but it was like Filipino TV. They were like, yo, holy shit, Richie is on TV. Because they watch it at home, right? Like back in the Philippines? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was like, that was when I realized that. And it was also when I realized that um, I, I was somewhat of a, and I say this humbly though, but when I realized I was a natural because, you know, I'd seen or I've heard stories about friends of mine who said, you know, the first TV hit, they were like, you know, one of my boys, super sharp broadcast was like, yo, I threw up 
you know, before I went on air and all these different things. And, and, and I'll go into like, I go into like survival mode, like adrenaline's rushing and I kind of have an out of body experience. And you know how, when you just do something and you can tell I am where I'm supposed to be. Yes. I felt it. You know what I mean? And I, I knew when the, and radio taught me about when to jump in, when to stay out. The thing that I had to get used to with TV, that's why I love podcasts so much. I love being able to fully explain things. I hope the listeners, I hope I'm not too long winded or boring you guys, but I know that when it's on TV, 30 second answers, keep it quick. You know, that was the biggest change for me, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a totally different beast, but I knew that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. Right. Yeah. Eyeline, I think is the toughest challenge that I've learned to realize. It's like, I just want to make sure that I'm looking at the one thing. Cause even when I'm doing this and we were doing that conversation through Zoom, that webinar really with a full panel, I'm looking at questions I have. I'm looking at the other questions that are coming in. I'm trying to make sure I have, I'm looking at the X that's on my camera. So I'm catching the eyeline. It's just absorbing so much information all at once. And also yes. even something as simple as reading teleprompter, it, that's tough too. Cause then that's commute. That's, you know, an intake of information that's coming at a pace that you, that isn't at your pace. You have to be at the pace of the information. I was always so upset when people used to criticize Barack Obama for being a quote unquote teleprompter president. And I was like, these people have no idea how hard it is to read a teleprompter. And we saw it when we started seeing other elected officials give addresses. I think Nancy Pelosi was looking real crazy one time when she gave the response to the president's state of the union one year. Uh, so many memes come out because it's hard to find that eye line. And you have to know that now we're getting into the weeds, but you have to even know that I tell my teleprompter operator, Oh yeah, they got to be your friend. They got to <laughs> like, be your friend. Yeah, when they're rolling that thing, it's like, yo, keep a pace. Like, keep I'm the like, pace, and I need the words right on top of that lens because I need to look down the barrel into your eyes. I remember I shot one thing before; it's out there in the universe. I won't say what it is because I don't want people to look and be like, "Oh, he is looking a little crazy." But uh, <laughs> I remember we shot it down in the Fresh Out Studios on the first floor at an MTV, and and I remember telling them, "I'm like, I'm never doing it." They had the, the thing where they held the iPod, iPad above the camera. I, I hate that. I, I hate it. And I'm like, you can't connect with anyone if you're not looking into their eyes. And if I'm doing this story and if you want me to connect, I need the viewer to believe that I'm looking them dead in the eye. And the viewer may not even know why they're not connecting with something. They just know, oh, this person is a host doing a host thing and it's fine, but whatever. But the reason when speakers connect, is because there's a connection and part of that connection is the eyes, which is the window to the spirit. I'm like, yo, I need you to know I'm looking in the eyes. So anytime I'm using a teleprompter, no iPad next to the camera, not above the camera, either give me the script, let me remember it, or or put that put that mug on the, on the teleprompter so I can really, really get it in. No, 100%. Damn, we're, we are in the weeds, but I think our my listeners tend to like when I get technical with stuff because it's information. Nice, nice. I would love to know, how'd you get MTV? Like, why do you get from Chicago to New York? Because that's a that's a jump, too. And I remember when I heard your name first came into my eardrums, it was in relation to True Life Crime, um, specifically the Kanika Jenkins episode, because I was on the team that was doing a lot of the package design for that show. Wow. So, yes. And also, like, with MTV News, of course, too, I was on the design team that I'm on that also I am the leader of and lead. Uh, we we work on a lot of that content. So that's when I really started hearing your name come in. But how did you get to MTV? I'm so fascinated by the amount of people that it requires to make a thing happen. 
And how many of these people who are so instrumental to the success of a project that you may host or you may be the face of, but may have put in three times the amount of hours that you put into it. And, and I say all that to say, um, and I don't get to meet all these people, you know what I'm saying? It's by happenstance. I think we might've met like on the floor one day, I complimented your shoes every day. And then I was like, <laughs> oh shit, this dude's a VP and he knows me. And he complimented with some of my work and I was very, very humbled by it. And I'm like, and, and I say all that to say part of the reason I got to MTV News was I began to build relationships with these behind the scenes people. And the value is of having folks who can speak on your behalf when you're not in the room. And I think that's a large part of how I ended up at MTV. More specifically, I was, MTV was casting for the True Life Crime Kanika Jenkins episode, I want to say in 2018. And my name kept coming up as a journalist who had reported on the story before who was within the MTV demo and who had the good mix of journalistic integrity and, and acumen, but also was swaggy enough to carry a show that MTV viewers would like. And, you know, we shoot the pilot and I ended up emailing the development team. The vice president of development actually reached out to me, said they loved the pilot. I didn't know how TV worked. I didn't know when or if the pilot would get greenlit, but it was in the can and she reached out to me and said, hey, listen, you know, we'd love to work on some projects with you. Let's figure something out or just introduce myself. And so me, I was like, yo, I love to meet in person. Didn't fully realize she was in L.A. And <laughs> so I flew to L.A. the next week and met up with their team and just told them what I was interested in. I didn't pitch any ideas, didn't pitch any shows. I just said, yo, I'm here. This is why I'm passionate about the stories that I'm passionate about. And they asked me, they said, you know, do you want to do entertainment journalism or are you more focused on documentaries type stuff? Now, normally I had two things that I could tell the truth or I could do what I feel like would get me a job at MTV. And the truth was I wanted to do documentaries. I wanted to do work that mattered. And I wanted to give the news in a way that non-stodgy, stuffy people would, would appreciate it. You know what I mean? Like not the stiff suit and tie type of news. You know, it can be smart and still be chill. I thought, and that's what I said. But, you know, for a second in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe I should say I want to do red carpets and stuff because I felt like those opportunities were more plentiful at an MTV. Right. If, believe me, like you can do a red carpet, like no problem. But, yeah, and, and if anything, they'll just put you on a red carpet. And see, and I didn't realize that. And so I'm so glad that I spoke my truth. And they and they said the exact same thing that you just said. And it was like, but it's rare that we find someone who might have an opportunity to do red carpets and talk to celebrities, but wants to wants to do stories, wants to do hard news stories. And they were, and they were like, okay. I later on found out that members of that development team always had me in mind and had projects in mind. They ended up giving me a consulting producer deal um, for the next uh, few months. And so I still got to work with that team. And then when the MTV News digital job came up, then I, I was able to come for the digital job. I worked doing the digital job for a few months and then found out that True Life Crime got greenlit. And so it was just a, a cascade of just good fortune at that time. So it was, it was so, and I, and I say so much about the background about, you know, meeting with those development team folks and folks like you having great things to say when I'm not around and it changes. You can really change someone's life by just saying something nice about them. If their name comes up in conversation. And, and I think that's part of how I ended up at MTV.
Oh yeah, one thousand percent. I think seeing some of those early cuts of Need to Know in that in that space, because now knowing uh, your your personal history of music and also like where that mindset comes from, I totally understand the the reasoning of like you know like you drive attention to the words, at least when it was done IRL in that mm-hmm. studio, and also that that type of storytelling that you would that you would create. Um, I'd love to know. So the stories that you that you pick and choose, I think that you know this year, <laughs> the craziest year, unlike I think in any oh of our God. lives, it's insane. Um, I think the the recent report that you did on NSARS, I thought that was you know quite fascinating as well. Um, yeah, I, I what is what is the what is the pitch process of you walking in the door of like here? This is the story that I want to tell, and how often are stories? presented to you to see what your spin on it will be. Oh man, I'm so thankful to our editorial VP Tehran because he really- Yo, shout out to yeah. Tehran more. I love Tehran. Tehran is my yeah. boy. I appreciate him so much. And we've been in the battlefields together when it comes Word. to like yeah, working. Like I love Tehran and a shout out all day to Tehran. You and b- both of you guys, I mean, two just, can we just, let me just fan out on just two just young VPs killing it. Like, <laughs> It's it's beyond inspiring, man. And Tehran gives me and my team so much autonomy on the stories we pick. I rarely get told no. If there's pushback, Tehran's pushback always comes from a place of how can we make this work? And a better understanding of why do you want to tell this story? Why do you need to tell it now? And why do our viewers care? And so we look at... Uh, you know, news stories through a pop culture lens. We're not a hard news outlet, but it's become much more serious in light of the pandemic. And the quarantine actually gave us an opportunity for viewers to really get clued into what we're saying. So I've been having the range to talk about deep issues because that's where the world is right now. Like everyone wants to understand this world better in this time. And so the pitch process is I wake up early. I, I scour the internet. We have a Slack channel where, you know, my writers and producers and PAs all put in stories and the camera guy, everybody on the team just puts in stories that they found interesting. And we try to find a pop culture angle. Why is this story relevant in pop culture? And how can we make, uh, and how can we make it interesting for our viewers? And do I have something to add to the story? What we found as the show evolved versus the beginning of the show, we couldn't just report on the news because by the time it aired on Twitter, Twitter moves so fast. Twitter's going to know the story by the time we get there. So what are you adding to the conversation? So I only pick stories for which I can add something to the conversation and something that you know affects me personally or a member of my team personally. And then I'll have them educate me on why does this matter so much to you? You know, like the Taylor Swift Scooter Braun story. I remember I had a, I had to have a real conversation with the Taylor, the Swifties on my team. Okay, break it down. Break down her career to me. Why does this matter? Okay, and let me find my end where I genuinely see what's up with where I fit into this equation, what I genuinely care about. So those are the kind of the things that we, that we think about when we're telling these stories. And it took us a while to really find our niche in that way. We had we transitioned writers and I became more involved in the writing process. I became more involved in the pitch process. A lot of meetings with Tehran where I was like, yo, I, I need, I'm still finding my voice in this space. And, and, and it took a while, but I think we caught our stride within the last year. I agree. I think that 
it seems like you've really, you personally, like you've really found your niche. And I really love what that uh, news team is doing from the range of coverage, as well as like from the expertise that's presented within the coverage. And I think um, I have these conversations, I'm kind of going a little bit off script here, but I've had these conversations previously uh, with individuals in our space, right? Where if you look at the MTV news context, from like back in the eighties, nineties, like Kurt Loder days, right? Like that, if you were to organically take that space into 2020, MTV News probably would would have just become the short form like social media component of MTV, right? So that would that would be where the pop culture journalism is. But I think what MTV News has done now, it it has cemented itself as like a specific voice within the ecosystem, and, and I think that you're a big component of that. And also Tehran too, because you know, shout out to Tehran. I love Tehran. I literally can't shout his praises more. I know, man. And, and yes, you, you just hit the nail on the head like that. That was the thing. Like, I remember what was frustrating when we first started the show, because, again, we're not really metrics driven. But when you start a new project, you want to know how it's performing. and You have to look at, at KPIs and figure out if this is working. And, you know, we we were th- there was a time when it was like, OK, we're going to talk about celebrities. We talk about audience love celebrity. We'll talk about Ariana Grande. We're going to. And I'm like, yo, we, you know, we're not entertainment tonight, though. This is still news, you know, and uh, entertainment tonight is pop culture news. It's entertainment news. And I love that show. I do stuff with them a lot. But we're different and we're not CNN, but we are. new. So what is that? And so it, it really did. It really did take some time to really figure out our voice and ask, you know, the team to really ask ourselves. We had a meeting. I remember the meeting where I said we need to identify who our listener is as an avatar. And I remember we used to do this when I worked at Target headquarters where they uh, they called her mom. They said, who's the Target mom? You know, she's a suburban woman who is still savvy enough to care about what she wears. So even though she's shopping for her clothes at Target because it's practical, it's inexpensive, it's got to be stylish. But she's mom, she's on the go, and you tailor your decisions in that way. And I feel like when we first started the show, I mean, I got a call on Monday to be in New York by Thursday for a show that was going live the following Monday. We didn't really have those conversations. We really learned it in the field. And it was, it was about figuring out who we were, but then also who our viewers were. And, you know, my thing that I always pushed and I'm, and I'm glad that it, it, it came out to be true was not only who our viewers are, but who we want our viewers to be so we can grow the pie. And I'm like, I'm also talking to my followers, you know, and and the people who have been supporting me and want to hear from me. And I need to speak to them, too, and bring them into the fold because they might not be looking at MTV News. And now they are. And, yeah, it's it 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 takes a lot to to finally get to that point. Yeah, totally. And I want to talk a bit about uh, conversations and context with Lonnie Bunch, secretary over at the Smithsonian. And I've watched the series. I, I do think it's it's a great conversation that you have with Lonnie, not unlike this, uh, but I want to know what is your, what was your interest in the project? And also what was your level of prep going into that project? Because there is so much history, um, you know, the, the contextualizing history and also contextualizing, um, you know, the uh, civil rights as well as social justice. I just want to know like, what was your headspace walking in the door on that one? Bro. I'm not going to lie to you, Rich. I was so nervous for that one because I I just wanted to impress this guy so much. Like when I first started at WVON, we would, or around the time, around the time when I was at WVON, 
the Smithsonian was just was being talked about, was just being built. The uh, uh, Museum of African American History was just being built, and Lonnie Bunch was somewhat of a myth within the radio station. And he was a friend to Perry Small, who was uh, the midday host on WVON. And so I had always known of the legend of the the very the brainy historian who was at the helm of the Smithsonian, and. We did a, an audio documentary special on the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. And we did, uh, we, 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 cover, we covered him extensively. So then when the opportunity came from the Smithsonian Channel team, it was like, okay, I need to figure out two things. I need to have an opportunity to pick his brain because it's not every day you get to talk to Lonnie Bunch, but I also need to make sure that I'm true to self and that I listen more than I speak. And I think that intergenerational conversations are so important that I want to make sure that he understands what's important to us. And because I'm talking to the Smithsonian, I have to put myself in the mind state that I'm now a griot and this will live on in their archives. This is now a part of African-American history. So what am I doing? So if how can I use this opportunity to bring modern day black art into that fold, into that narrative. And then Smithsonian is already doing it because they have a, a projects on rap anthology and such. And so part of my preparation with their team, they had a really bare bones outline for what they wanted. At first, all they knew they wanted, and they sent me so many dope uh, decks and P PDFs. And it was just them brainstorming. They said, really, we just know we want y'all two to talk. But they didn't really know exactly what they wanted to do. And I just kept marking up the Google Docs, sending them back and forth, sending them back and forth. And I started to see these parallels between figures from back in the day and figures today. And they said they wanted to drop the, the series on cultural moments in American history. And so I don't know, in, in some, somewhere in that brainstorming process came the idea that everything we're seeing happen today can be tied to something that happened back in the day. And around the time when this brainstorm was happening, the Madam C.J. Walker story came out on Netflix. And I remember that infamous picture of Madam C.J. Walker riding in a car with her and her girls, and they had on big hats and fur coats. And she reminded me, for some reason, of Megan Thee Stallion. Because she had, like, this larger-than-life personality, a lot of money, and it was her and her girls. And they were alpha women. Right. And I was like, yo, there's this... We forget that there was, like, this gaudy, entrepreneurial, flashy, fly aesthetic in the Harlem Renaissance that isn't different from what we see from rappers today, male and female. And I wanted to make sure that came through with conversations and context. I know that's like a super long answer, but um, I just get so excited talking about it. And that was literally one of the one of the crowning joys of my career, one of the best projects that I've done because we made it work even though we were in quarantine. And it watches like it streams like an somewhat of a documentary and i love docuseries type of work and i had long been trying to get more momentum moving images and video in my pieces and the smithsonian team finally blessed me with the opportunity to do that and i was so grateful for it totally and also i love the uh the madam cj walker connection point because also she was you know a great figure of a uh, great counterculture figure yeah. but, and also you know lived a life uh, that was larger than life and also a, a great figure of, of black queerness like like you know back then as well like she really held it down 
for for the community and yeah she's a, you're not the first person to bring her up on this podcast either so that's that's super dope that's crazy yeah. <laughs> i want to also for the listener too anything that goes through the smithsonian lens goes through like a very stringent historical like fact checking lens so for you to even accomplish this um on their channel I, again i encourage all of our listeners to check that out it's, it's actually an accomplishment on on a lot of different levels to be in um historical record and within historical context as opposed to just like you know a free flow conversation like this yeah and, and it was absolutely absolutely and it the, the, i'm so thankful to the production team there too uh because when we went back and forth about you know what the different pillars are we're going to talk about music we're going to talk about memory we're going to talk about moments in history and all of these different things we were thinking about the other unnerving thing for me was i'm free-flowing a conversation with someone who knows dates, names, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to make sure that I get these things right. And you, what you said on the fact-checking part was so crucial because it's a little bit easier to write a well-researched piece and look down the lens and read it because you know you've done your work. But in the free-flowing of conversation, how do you make sure that you thread the needle precisely right and make it easy on the fact-checking team so when they get the raw files, they're not like, oh, you got that name wrong. Oh, you got that name wrong. Oh. Yo, 1,000%. Yeah, it's that part. It's really that part because then it's like, oh, we can't use that whole segment because you fucked up a day or something. Yeah, exactly. Actually, in, in, in fact, I can use some, some tea, some behind-the-scenes tea. I think I call Omar Jimenez for CNN, Oscar Jimenez, uh, in, in the piece – and they were like, yo, can you go over and do like a VO just to get that sentence? I was like, yo, if I did a two-hour conversation, five-part series, and I only got one punch in, I'm good. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did mess up one thing. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty good. You're, you're shooting like 90% from the field at that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was, it was a feat. And it was just, I don't know if we see too many conversations intergenerationally between black men, because like, just to be a hundred percent with you, like our fathers aren't in the household like they should be. Now there are studies that show that black men, when they are in a household are more active and involved in other demographics. They tend to be present. They tend to be, you know, more involved in the family. I can't remember where the report is, but if you look it up, you'll find it. But anecdotally, I know a lot of my boys didn't grow up with their fathers in the household. And so in the barbershop, those were where you had those conversations with older men and you found mentorship in the street dudes or the friends, the big brothers and such. And I always felt like there was this missing connection between, you know, older black men and younger black men just hashing it out. And, uh, and that, that, that convo was near and dear to my heart for that reason too. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and also I, I appreciate you for bringing, adding that um, element of color too for the importance also significance of the conversation with Lonnie. Uh, yeah. So last couple of questions, yeah. uh, we're kind of winding down and, uh, I know we, we've in every iteration of this conversation, I, I've wanted to ask this, but uh, I'd love for you to tell us about bringing people of uh, West African descent back to Ghana. You've done these dope trips back to the homeland. You've taken almost 70 people out there. Just tell us about that importance and also, um, what that means to you to, to give that transformative experience to other people. Man, that was a dream come true because at, only time I'd gone to Ghana was as a kid. I think I was like six years old. And I got these fuzzy memories of, you know, meeting cousins, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't feel fully, like, like you said, you know, being first gen is a fight for cultural identity. And the opportunity arose to 
partnered with WVON, partnered with the radio station to uh, take these tours to Ghana. And the idea was to introduce Black Americans to the African diaspora so they feel a part of this cultural conversation because, you know, Black people are the most peculiar immigrants in American history. Immigrants, I put that in quotes because they didn't choose to come here. Yet, because of, uh, you know, the, the way we're taught in school, Eurocentric history books, we're not taught about our history. Yo, you said the term Eurocentric history books, and that's the term Eurocentricity is something that comes up in here a lot, specifically mm. about the individuals that write the history books and the way that history is contextualized in the sense of like winners, losers, and also the class discrimination that is ingrained within our history. And, and you know, and that goes into other conversations about decolonization that come up on this com- in this podcast a lot. So, yes, there is there's an African proverb that goes, um, the story will always glorify the hunter until the lion learns to write. And this was my opportunity to take some lions back to back to the den and and give them the story so we could rewrite our own narratives and. What I found was that every single person that went on that trip with me also had an inexplainable spiritual experience as well. When we went to the slave dungeons in Elmina in Cape Coast and we walked around and we smelled what the dungeon smelled like. And when they talked about the bodies stacked on top of one another and if they had to defecate, they would defecate on someone sitting next to them. If they had to pee, if the women had their menstrual cycle, they had to experience all those things in the stench of this overpopulated den. There's one dungeon where the, the hall is all black and there's a small opening at the very top. I think the ceiling might've been like 20 feet high where there's just a window where you can see it. And they said the food would be pushed through the top of this small window and only the slaves, the enslaved Africans in the front of the dungeon would have access to the food, which meant you have fighting amongst them all throughout it to get these scraps. So it created resentment amongst each other. So many psychological things that were done to make the enslaved rebel against one another, to sow discord. It was a study in psychological torture. And you start to relate it to the number that is done on our psyche in school through Eurocentric teaching, through the lies that are told about Africans, it made so many things click that nothing that has happened to Africans in America happened in a vacuum. That is part of this longer, larger story about how Europeans had figured out how to control the minds of the of a human being. It's really sadistic. And, you know, I'm using stronger words than we used on the other forum because this is a safer space. And it was like, it, it showed me like the, the, the barbarism that was at play. And I think that that journey going back to Africa made a lot of the Black Americans with me better understand where we fit into the fabric of the American story. And it, it helped them, it helped how they, it helped inform how they moved through the world and it removed a little bit of the naivete when we look at why aren't our communities progressing the way they should. And it was a, it was just an out of body experience. And so I hope to one day find the words to really explain what that was like. I know a lot of African-Americans went to Ghana in December, uh, 2019 for Afrochella and they had these experiences, but, um, I've been reading a lot of Marcus Garvey lately. I got, I got my, my book, Philosophies of Marcus Garvey that I'm showing the, uh, the rich on the camera right now <laughs> to try to find the words, 
uh, that informed Marcus's uh, rallying cry to say Africa is for Africans. And, um, and that trip has, you know, I went four times of taking about 70 people. That trip has helped me to better understand myself and, uh, and, and my folks, my people all over the world. Oh, that's amazing. Sorry, I was unmuting. I was muting and unmuting because you can hear some sirens on my door. It's this New York noise. New York. <laughs> yeah, this New York. But no, that's amazing to hear. And, you know, honestly, it does fill my heart hearing those stories about going back to the homeland, uh, you know, for literally anybody, but especially for you, like, like hearing that and also being able to give that gift to other people. And I think it's really, um, it, it's kind of a next level of personal development. When you, when you take the learnings that you know and that you've picked up along the way that have helped make you a better person, I think you're able to give those learnings to other people. I think that's just such a dope thing. And, you know, applause to you, man. So that's, man, I can't even take, I, I would rather say that uh, God just got lucky to learn with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, yeah, so, but thank you. It was, you know, um, and I'll share this one, this one thing really quickly too. Um, the emphasis on African spirituality and just like, how there is a language that indigenous people of all backgrounds have amongst each other that can't be explained. And I think that Eurocentric teaching from science to math all has its value, even though math, you know, originated in, in other cultures and African cultures and such, uh, in the Greeks, but the Greeks, you know, had their hand in that as well. But I, I say that to say, um, these teachings were, were so formed on logic and the mental that we deprioritize the spiritual and think about our inclinations and our gut feelings as something secondary. Say all that to say the tour group that I went with for the first two years to Ghana, I was, I was breaking my relationship with them because we had some business differences. And when I was on the continent on my second trip and I was thinking about what am I going to do next year? Cause I don't want to work with this tour agency. I was talking to somebody and someone next to me overheard the conversation and said, yo, you sound like you got a Chicago accent. You from the States. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm from the shy. I'm Doma T. Pungo. She said, oh my God, we listen to WVON. My name is Lenise Thomas Flagg. I'm like, wait a minute. We left our country, go all the way to a beach resort, Coconut Grove Beach Resort in Elmina, Ghana. And this is where we're meeting. She said, yeah, I put together a group tour as well. Meet some of our travelers. And I said, wow, I'm looking for somebody to help curate my tour for next year. Can you help me out? She was like, oh, I got you. And she and I are friends to this day and continue the tour up until this day. And all of that go back to the synergy and the spiritual, spiritual connectedness of the African diaspora where two people just met at the right time and just spoke at the right time. And, and she's become one of my, my best friends and such a valued tour partner. And so even that, you know what I mean? Even that, there's a spiritual ancestral energy in Ghana that, that folks felt, man. Damn, I love that. It's like the energy. Like you, I believe in energy now and like also creating that that force around you and also like, you know, curation of that and maintaining um, that spirit with other people. Because I think the world and the, the universe will repay you if you have that energy. Um, I would love to uh, go out on a question specifically about about what you're doing to, to give yourself life right now. I think um, being within the MTV org and also within the larger Viacom CBS. I, I barely ever talk about this stuff on this podcast because this is a personal journey, but, uh, but you know, we're, we're in the same space. So you have done so much in terms of giving the organization like a voice, also an educational um, POV on not just social justice, but also the, uh, the pandemic in your conversations with uh, epidemiologists whose name I'm forgetting right now. I'm slipping on his name. 
It's a uh, Utah. Uh, oh, oh, Dr. Luke O'Neill. Yeah, Dr. Luke O'Neill. So you and no one gets to see those except for us when we are in the org. Uh, but what are you doing to, you know, give yourself um, to, you know, to help your own mindset within this, the lockdown and also help your own mindset um, in 2020? Just want to hear about what gives Doma Tipongo some positive energy. I'm glad you asked because that is an ever evolving journey. And um, there's a temptation when you do podcasts and shows and you ask a question like that, you want to sound like you've got it together. You want to give tips and tell things that, that work for you and that people, you know, I'm still figuring it out, Rich. I don't, I don't fucking know. I'm like, not even, <laughs> I'm not fully. There are a few things that I've been doing and different things work for me in different seasons. I realize that when I'm doing true life crime, uh, I'm different. My personality is different. I'm hearing stories about really gruesome murders. I'm talking to mourning families. And for so long as men, we don't really, check in with our feelings and emotions and, and realize how we feel about things. And so I started to, it was when I started working with true life crime that I figured out that I needed a coming down process to get off of the show. And so I started meditating and meditation looks different for me, different times. Sometimes it's a three minute breath exercise with the headspace app. Other times it's me sitting in front of a wall, maybe with the TV on in the background for maybe an hour, just not talking, not doing anything. Um, and then watching Love and Hip Hop or something mindless where I don't have to think. Um, and then other times throughout the pandemic, I got a bike. I'm not even really big on exercise. I do just enough to stay in shape. But um, cycling, my boys came over one day and had their bikes. And they said, yo, come outside, man. You've been in the crib too long. You know, come out. We socially distant, but jump on these bikes. And I went and got a Divi bike and rode with my guys. All us 20, 30-somethings uh, riding around. I felt like a big-ass kid. And I said, I'm getting a bike. And I went took my pandemic stimulus check and bought me a bike. <laughs> and uh, that was my birthday gift to myself. So cycling has helped. I've just gotten back into playing chess. I was really an avid chess player at one point. I uh, started playing on the chess app and I lost more games than I felt like losing. And so I've been picking up my books again. So I've been doing chess puzzles to get my mental right and keeping myself busy has also all been therapeutic. Uh, but eventually I do want to want to go to therapy to get more intentional about how to take care of myself right now. I hear that. Yeah. I love what you said about um, as men, it's not so typical to be in check with your feelings, but I, you know, I've done the same thing where wanting to be more um, not just in tune with myself, but also like wanting to make safe spaces around those around me so that we can all be in tune so that, you know, we're not trying to, you know, lock down our emotions in a, in a toxic way. So I appreciate you for Absolutely. that. No doubt. Yeah. So, uh, Domati, this has been a great conversation. I miss seeing you around the office, just, you know, complimenting your sneakers, but it's been great to <laughs> kind of get these deeper, deeper level conversations of the past few days. Um, I would love for you to tell our listeners where they can find you, what's coming up. That's this plug zone. Man, I, I love this conversation so much, Rich. I love your show. And you are such a good host. It's it's crazy because there are very few people who have so many talents in so many different areas, business acumen, graphic design acumen, sneaker fly, and, and a great host. So I just want to say that while I'm here. But yeah, y'all can follow me at Domiti underscore, D-O-M-E-T-I underscore on all platforms. Uh, Need to Know airs Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, hosted by myself and my colleague in MTV News, Yoonj Kim, another uh, diverse phenomenon, my Asian sister, um, and we talk about, you know, it's kind of like a video editorial column about things that are happening in the zeitgeist where you're going to get some news, you're going to get some facts, you're going to get a little bit of context and perspective. You can check out Smithsonian's 
context, conversations in context. Um, hit the link in any of my bios and um yeah man and hopefully you know i have some announcements around true life crime let's see if we're able to figure out if this is coming back this season if we can make it work and uh you know but until then go to mtvnews.com or mtv.com and check out the last season of true life crime domati thank you so much i'm sure we'll talk again we'd love to have you back and this has been such a pleasure thank you so much rich appreciate you thanks for listening that was such a great conversation with Doma T. Really great energy on that one. Um, any broadcast journalism majors out there, I hope you're paying attention, taking some notes. In the meantime, you can find First Generation Burden Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Thanks to Listening Party and DesGen team for their support. Don't forget to vote November 3rd. It's the last day to do it. Be safe, everyone.